0: Course, continuing on in the book of Nahum or Nahum. So, um, yeah, I'm encouraged in Christ uh, that every week we consider how our only hope really is Jesus. And um, that's God's design, is that we come here to cling to Him uh, as He changes us and molds us and walks with us through suffering. So, let's pray together as we look to His Word together. Father, we are weak and fickle humans and we are so thankful that you have given us your scriptures, that you've had your words written down, that we can study them, hold on to them, cherish them. We're thankful that you've revealed yourself to us and we can learn things about you and about ourselves and we can hold on to the promises that you have made and followed through with from the Old Testament to the New, and then promises that you've made in the New Testament um, that were foreshadowed in the Old. And Father, we're thankful for your faithfulness. And we, uh, we come to you needy, asking you to be faithful, to use this time to, to grow us, to help us to see Christ, that we would be knit together in love and unity around him. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So sometimes, in all transparency, I just don't feel good. Can any of you guys just relate to that, where you just just don't feel good? Whether it's just like a, a feeling that you can't describe, or whether it's a circumstance that's causing these feelings where you just don't feel good, things just aren't going well. And on top of that, because we are human and because we feel things like that, We also just don't feel like God hears us or that he loves us. And sometimes I even feel like I'm doomed. I find myself thinking and fighting this feeling of hopelessness sometimes about life in general. And also because I get into this space where God doesn't feel safe and he doesn't feel near. Can Anyone relate to that sort of circumstance? And so it's happened to me that in studying and analyzing the judgment of God, it's actually helping me to learn to rest in the midst of those thoughts and those feelings. It doesn't really do away with them, but it teaches me to rest in what I know to be true. And so we're going to see how studying and analyzing in Nahum, the judgment and the severity of God helps us to rest in the midst of our human circumstance of not feeling good. And so, Nahum is, of course, as we've talked about, it's a book that's just exclusively dedicated to the judgment of God, to the terrors of the wrath of God. And so, although the first chapter is very zealous to communicate uh, the jealousy of God for his people, the, the book does more to really attract our disgust and our hostility rather than it does to attract our hearts. And so, there's a reason that a lot of the verses that we read in Nahum. Nahum don't make it to refrigerator magnets, they don't make it to water bottle stickers, and they certainly don't make it on t-shirts where we're going to say this is our God. I mean, we're going to read some verses next week that may make some of us uncomfortable to hear read out loud. So why would we post that on a t-shirt and say these are the words of our God? But this is this is Nahum and it's communicated this way for a reason. And so with eyes to see we're actually watching glory shine over the darkest nights of Nahum's prophecy of judgment. So in the past two weeks, we've walked through the first seven verses of chapter one, and we observed that God is good, and because of that, he punishes evil. And while God is full of wrath for his enemies, he is jealous for his own people, and he is a refuge for them in times of trouble. And then we considered how The vengeance of God towards Nineveh actually shadows a much greater vengeance God has for all evil and all evildoers. And in Christ Jesus, the rock of ages, he is the only way that God can become a refuge for sinners. And then we move forward to the end of chapter one. And last week we observed how God's goodness results in judgment and faithfulness and how God is going to pursue Nineveh into the darkness. God's wrath is going to be so terrible that death and hell are going to seem like a comfort. He's going to pursue them into darkness. They're going to be running to darkness trying to escape the wrath of God. And he allowed Assyria, God allowed Assyria, to overtake the northern tribes of Israel, and he's allowed them to torment and oppress Judah. And he's used Assyria to accomplish his purpose of lovingly and sovereignly disciplining Judah, disciplining them out of their pride and out of their distrust and idolatry. And so he has them in the place that he wants them. And so as Nineveh pushes ahead, though, to take over the world, God is not going to let Judah see decay. God has promised that the Messiah would come from them, and he is faithful. So because of his steadfast love for his people, he's going to eradicate the Assyrians because they have no respect for God. They have no fear of God. And God is unswervingly committed to bring from Judah the snake crusher, the Messiah who would crush sin and Satan and hell. And we ended our time last week, and we saw how God's judgment and destruction of Nineveh is a type that finds its partial fulfillment in Christ, who was judged, in the place of all of God's people so that they could be forgiven and so that they could have peace for all eternity. And it finds its complete fulfillment when Christ returns and he brings new Jerusalem to earth. And sin and Satan and hell and death will be completely eradicated and we will walk with God forever. And so now we're in chapter 2. And Nahum is going to describe as if he were watching it happen how God is going to destroy Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. So if you haven't already done so, you can go ahead and flip to Nahum and look at chapter 2, or you can turn them on, or you can just follow along on the screen behind me. Either way is fine. All right. I'll begin reading in verse 1. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all of your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall and they siege. Tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turn back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where the cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness, his lionesses, and he filled his caves with the prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions, and I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. These are the words of our God, and we thank him for his word. So, verse one, our plan today, we're going to work through the verses and pull out some truths that we can take away. So, starting in verse one the scatterer has come up against you. So, God has many names. And he deserves every one of his names. The problem is that most of his names mean terrible things for sinners like you and I. So the scatterer has come up against you. What a horrific but fitting name. And how God is the scatterer and he is absolute in his task. He will make a complete end, as we read in chapter one. Trouble will not rise up a second time. And when the scatterer rises up, who can stand against his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger, asked Nahum in chapter 1. The answer, no one. And so Nahum calling God the scatterer is good, and it's, but it's also not random. Remember back in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel, which we just went through not too many weeks ago, and how God breaks apart Nimrod's empire because the people gathered together and they work together to make a name for themselves. And Genesis 11:8 says, So the Lord dispersed them or scattered them from there over the face of all the earth. And so just like with the scattering at the Tower of Babel, God's wrath reveals himself to be breaking apart Assyria. The scatterer triumphs over every human achievement. So God is going to put an end to Nineveh. He's come up against them. This is a military term. The scatterer has come up against you, which is appropriate because God is going to use an army to destroy the Assyrian Empire. And so Nahum tells Nineveh in the rest of verse one, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. It's just literary sarcasm here because Nahum then goes on to describe how they're going to be destroyed. So he's sarcastically saying, get ready, find all your strength. But your doom is sure. Because God is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Verse 2. So why is the, cat, the scatterer come up against Nineveh, up against the Assyrian Empire? Because he is restoring the pride of Jacob. Another word for majesty is the pride of Jacob and the pride of Israel. He's restoring them. And so this is not pointing to a specific time where God's going to bring Israel back to a world power. They're going to reign in Canaan and everything goes well. The rest of the Old Testament proves that that doesn't happen, right? What is happening is God has completed his purpose. God has humbled Judah to where he wants them, and now he's restoring them. So Judah had been lowered to the place of no hope. God's judgment on Nineveh and his slowness to anger and steadfast love with Judah is their only hope. They can no longer muster up strength to get them out of this circumstance. Judah has to turn to God. He they have to look to him and say, Help. They've been stripped of all power, of all freedom. They couldn't defend themselves. And seeking to build a name apart from God, Judah couldn't even team up with the world to save themselves. So God uses Nineveh to lower them. And He's accomplished that purpose. He's returned them to the place of recognizing who He is. And their only boast can be in God, in the true and living God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. That's the only hope they've ever really had. They would be nothing had not God chosen Abraham and raised up a nation. Or thinking about how he delivered his people from Egypt with Moses. He spread seas apart. I mean, nature is being thrown into confusion because God is protecting his people. God has always been his people's only hope. And they seem to forget that. And so God humbles them and says, try to do it on your own. And they're under the shadow of this empire, about to be destroyed. The the northern kingdom has already fallen. And now Judah is like, God, help us, lest we be destroyed as well. So God has got them to that place. And this phrase, the, the pride of Jacob, the majesty of Jacob, is the pride of Israel. There's not many places that this comes up. And there's also not a lot of research done on this phrase, the pride of Jacob. It's found in Psalm 47, verses 4. It's found also in Amos, chapter 6 and chapter 8. And it's used two ways, in bad ways and in good ways. In some of the good ways, God said that he, in this way, I'm going to restore the majesty of Jacob, or he swears by the pride of Jacob. In other ways, he says, I hate the pride of Jacob. It's very interesting. It's a play on words there. So when God says he hates the pride of Jacob and Amos, he's referring to how Israel always seems to trust in this this political and military mindset where they get to just take over all the world and be powerful. They always end up trusting in themselves and building their own kingdom. He hates that about them. I mean, if you think about Jacob's life, right, who was given the new name of Israel, but think about how Jacob's life was full of pride. He was always after his own desires. I mean, he was such a, like a flawed human character. He came out of the womb, grabbing Esau's heel like he was trying to pull him back. He didn't want to be last. He wanted to be first. He stole his brother's birthright by deceiving his blind father. He works up a business deal to earn the wife of his dreams. Then he separates his family because he's scared when he hears that Esau wants him dead. But God had chosen, broken, and carried Jacob. The pride of Jacob in verse 2 of our text today is obviously not about Jacob, but Jacob's God. It was not the grip that Jacob had on life to get what he wanted. It was the sovereign, all-wise God who always had a grip on Jacob. I mean, God tells Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. And what God is doing is he is showing how his mercy depends not on human will. It doesn't depend on which nation is the strongest. It doesn't depend on how much exertion that you can do to try to please God. It depends on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 11 through 16 talks all about this. He's showing that no one deserves his mercy, but he's decided to have mercy. And so it's because of this that he places the blessing of Abraham onto Jacob, the younger, weaker, deceptive brother. So by humbling Judah with the savage Assyrian empire, God is restoring Judah to her rightful place in being the light to the world, in displaying the greatness of her God, in calling nations to fear him who is slow to anger, who is great in power. And who will by no means clear the guilty. When God says that He's restoring the pride of Jacob as the pride of Israel, He is restoring their hope and their trust in God. He is restoring them as the nation who points to the all wise, sovereign God of the universe. He was calling them not to trust in themselves, but to trust in Him. And so we move on to the second half of verse 2. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. And this is metaphorically descri- describing what Assyria has done to the northern and southern tribes of God's people. All but the southern kingdom have pretty much been ripped up by the roots in front of their enemies, and they've been plundered to nothing. So Judah can they cannot grow. It's like their, their branches are ruined. They cannot grow. Judah's still in the ground, if you will. But there's no flourishing. There's no growing. There's really no moving forward. It only seems like it's going to die. So God has got him in this place because he is restoring the pride of Jacob. This has happened. Therefore, he's accomplished his will and he is ready to restore the pride of Jacob. He's ready to judge Nineveh. You see, Nineveh had presumed on God's wisdom and discipline of his people. And he, they look at their overtaking of Israel as their power, as their own might, as their own strength, as something to be trusted in. They don't consider God's plan and God's wisdom. They see Israel being overtaken as a weakness of their God. This one, this one nation who repented out of fear of God's wrath now cares nothing about God and actually threatens him by saying that he's going to take over their people. And so now that God, again, has his people where he wants them, all our only hope is you, God. He is going to judge. Moving on to verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is red. His shoulders' soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Some say, you know, that the shield is painted red. Others say that it could be covered in the blood of their enemies. And being... Clothed in scarlet, seems to really just communicate that the colors of their uniforms are scarlet. Could mean more, but at the end of the day, here's what is being said. The army with which God's going to use to destroy Nineveh, their appearance is just going to cause fear in their enemies. Their appearance, just Nineveh seeing this army, they're going to be this mighty, mighty empire of Assyria. These mighty warriors of Nineveh are going to shake in fear just by looking at these people. The end of verse 3, the chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them and the cypress spears are brandished again. This metal that's on the side of these chariots, would, they would flash against the sun, right? So these, they're covered in red, they're, the chariots are flashing and they're brandishing their spears. They're holding up their spears like they're just ready to go, You know, like we're ready to kill. So this empire just, this army just looks terrifying. Moving on to verse 4. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They, they glean like torches. They dart like lightning. These men will be racing through the streets like madmen, like, like with no reservation for anything. They're just fast and nasty and mean and, with this tenacity and fierceness, they're charging through the streets, and they're almost like cracks of lightning and flames of fire. It will feel like they've been sent from heaven above, right? This nasty scene of, of this army flushing through Nineveh. Verse 5, he remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. They The siege tower is set up. This describes how, like, this is happening, and the Assyrian officers are, like, like trying to go to the wall that's protecting them and they're stumbling and they're scared and they're, it's way too late. There's no success. They're trying to get ready, stumbling over each other and it's just like a massacre. These guys are like cracks of lightning in the streets and they're stumbling to get to a protected place in order to defend the city. Verse 6, the river gates are opened and the palace melts away. You see, Nineveh was set up on the near the Tigris River and so they, you know, rightly assuming that the huge gate that was near that body of water and that flow is not or the river is known to have flown the fierce the, the fastest and the hardest and so you would think okay that gate is safe no one's going to get through that water and then this gate so we can not worry about that well he's saying that the floodgates are open anything that Nineveh could try to put their hope in to keep this army away it's not happening it, it won't happen the floodgates They didn't stay closed. He's declaring that all hindrances that could keep the enemies of Nineveh away will be removed. Any fortress that could keep the enemies out of Nineveh are going to melt away. Verse 7, its mistress is stripped. She's carried off her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. And. Uh, Your Bible may have the note, but it's it's even true in trying to do some research that the words here are very, very ambiguous. It's not really sure what is what are they referring to by this or what imagery is trying to be shown exactly. And, you know, there's it's just a lot of ambiguity or ambiguity. But this shouldn't cause doubt in your understanding of our interpretation of Scripture, because if you read this in the context of what's going on, it's very clear what the point is. It's just not good. If you read that sentence, it's like I don't know what that means, but it ain't good, right? So, that that's simply okay to read that in context and say, yeah, whatever that is, it's just probably terrible. It doesn't sound pleasant, that's for sure. But in really digging in, and with all that said, what I think is most plausible is that this woman is Nineveh's goddess Ishtar, and so you can read all about Ishtar with King Sennacherib and. In uh, 2 Kings 19, but her temple stood in the royal palace in the city's inner walls. And historians note that in Assyrian text that they have been reported to call this goddess Ishtar the Lady of Nineveh. And there was obviously a practice of taking a god statue. And if you did that and you took their statue into exile, it meant that that goddess or that god, that idol was powerless to, to protect her chosen city. So, of course, if that's the case and they take this God, all of her people are lamenting because their idol is powerless. Their goddess is powerless. It cannot save them. So this is the image I think that Nahum is is communicating, is that their God is taken away and their people lament because she, it, the idol, is powerless to protect them. Moving on to verse 8. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turned back. This image displays Nineveh like a pool, and it's just being drained away. It's like pulling the plug if you have a cooler full of water, just drained away. See, God declares Himself to be against Nineveh, and so their long standing, ancient, mighty power and prosperity means absolutely nothing against His purposes. And they are being drained out to nothing because God is against them. Verse 9, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Assyria, specifically Nineveh, who once plundered anyone that they came in contact with and drained them to nothing. This Nineveh is now being plundered to nothing. The depths of the stolen riches of Nineveh are now being plundered and stolen from them. Verse 10, desolate, desolation and ruin. There's no, um, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all the loins and all the faces grow pale. The repetition of these words obviously indicate the certainty of the ruin and desolation of Nineveh, especially in the Assyrian Empire outside of that city. And so, this unstoppable empire, full of mighty warriors, will no longer be described that way. This great empire, these mighty men, are now being described as desolation desolation and ruin because God is against them. Emotionally and physically these these soldiers are depleted of all pride of all confidence or encouragement that things could possibly go okay, that we could defend. There is none. I mean, they're physically and mentally here shaking, they're trembling. They once were puffed up, but now they have nothing in them to give them confidence. God's wrath will be so terrible through this army that Nineveh will be utterly terrified. The empire that's ruling the world will be utterly terrified because God is against them. Verse 11 and 12, speaking of these lions and the lion's den, here's what's being communicated. The imagery here is imagine you got your lion in his den, his lionesses and his cubs, Nobody is any of you. Will any of you walk into that? I'm not talking about the zoo. I'm talking about nature. Like there's a den out there. Are you going to walk into that? Absolutely not. They're safe. They're fine. No one's going in there. Right. So this once vicious, huge, glorious, powerful empire with no one to disturb them. God said he is going to come through. And destroy them. Verse 13. So he sets it up. Verse 11 and 12 this huge empire that no one is ever going to destroy them. God says, behold, I am against you. Because I am against you, you will be destroyed. With an overflowing flood, I will make a complete end of the adversaries, and I will pursue them into darkness. You will not rise up a second time. Assyria. No more shall you exist, Nineveh. So that concludes our time in just looking at these verses. And, brothers and sisters, this God who has declared all of this to be against Nineveh is the same God who asks us, tells us, commands us to pray for our enemies, to forgive them, to turn the other cheek to our enemies, as we read earlier today. But this God does not sound like that God, does it? I mean, this God seems like some sadistic, out-of-control monster, but he's not. Here's the thing. The wrath of God means one thing, hopelessness. The wrath of God means hopelessness. God said he is against Nineveh, They are hopeless. And so takeaway number one, truth number one that we can take away from just considering all that we've looked at in previous weeks up until our verses today is this. If God is against you, you're finished. If God is against you, you are finished. You have nowhere to hide. You have nowhere to go. You have no way to stop the power of his wrath. You have no refuge that could keep you safe. Your prayers don't matter. Your change of behavior won't change his mind. There is no backdoor escape when God says he is against you. There's no weapons that work against him. Tears, no matter how many or how sincere, won't stop the wrath of God. Prayers, no matter how long or how sincere, won't stop the wrath of God. No number of good deeds will get you off the hook because ultimately, we must answer. our crimes. We must answer for our crimes. This is what it means to live before a holy God. He will never ignore sin or let it off the hook. Never. If only the wrath of God could turn from us and we could see God as the God of grace. If only we could cry that God is for us and not against us. Then we could have reason not to run from him straight into hell, but to run to him in praise. And this is the good news of the gospel. The one who scatters becomes the one who gathers. God the Son takes on flesh, and he doesn't go out to scatter his sheep. John 10 tells us that the good shepherd. He goes out and finds them and brings them into his fold. In Christ, the many names of God, like we talked about at the beginning, they no longer mean we are damned, but they mean that we are loved. Because of Christ, the scatterer becomes the gatherer. Because of Christ, the judge has now become our father. Because of Christ, the destroyer of his adversaries is the builder of his church who is preparing us, the bride for Christ's return. The one who weighs out everyone as righteous or vile, he weighs his people to be righteous by crediting the righteousness of Christ and the punishment of his son as their very own. And how Jesus is the beautiful feet that publishes peace and he gathers into himself the sins of his people and he endures this very wrath that Nahum is talking about. Brothers and sisters, our punishment was placed on the spotless Lamb of God. At the cross, the God of wrath becomes the God of glorious grace by crushing Jesus. Christ Jesus is the only one who could stand in between the wrathful God and careless sinners. Nahum describes here, we've, just, we've considered already, this desolation and this abandonment that lies between a wrathful God and careless sinners. And that abandonment and that desolation was experienced by Christ on your behalf. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cries out our Lord, who hung cursed on a tree. God did this. God did this in order to reunite us from sin's curse to himself. And the second truth that we can take away from our considerations in Nahum is this that God's design is that we live our life in dependence. We live our lives in dependence upon Christ, not our own efforts. God's design is that we live our lives in dependence upon Christ, not our own efforts. Right? So God wasn't asking Judah to be strong, did he once ask Judah to be strong? And he's not asking you to be strong and to prove to him that you're worth it. He's not asking you to prove that you're worth his love. He did not scatter you and scatter us from hoping in our own achievements to trust Christ, all so that we could turn around and basically trust in our own efforts again to feel like after Christ that God loves us. And we do this, we return to our own efforts because we want to have some skin in the game, but we have no skin in the game. Judah, the pride of Judah, God had to get them to realize, right, that they have no skin in the game. If God doesn't do something, we are toast. You have nothing of value to bring. You have no righteousness that will keep the wrath of God away from you, but you have been given Christ, and Christ is enough. And you see, This is true revival. We all want this spiritual revival, right, where we get a dose of the ghost, things start going well, and and we're doing good, we're feeling good, everything's just fine. But that is not revival. You see, here's the thing. God disciplining Judah in order to show them their sinfulness and their weakness, in order to restore in them a hope and trust in God alone, that is revival. In our flesh, though, we loathe this idea of God humbling us over and over and over to where all we can really say is, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. We like the way that sounds. And here as we sit in church, we love, like, but I want to be there. But when we experience that, where we really feel like I'm just so messed up, and I feel bad, I feel my sin, I feel hopelessness, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's exactly where he wants us, but in our natural state, we don't like to be there. It's not all that fun. We loathe this idea of a holy God sanctifying us this way, showing us our sin and causing us to really say, Christ is my only hope. It's scary. It takes us to a place where we don't want to be. We don't want to be in a place where we can do nothing for ourselves. We don't want to feel hopeless like Judah feels. We don't want to have to come to the grips that we can do nothing to save ourselves. And so in the Christian life, we would rather convince ourselves that we can still, you know, sway God. We can still earn his favor. We can still make a name for ourselves. But this is not how he operates. He has liberated us in Christ. From the curse of the law unto the freedom of righteousness, to the freedom of loving God and loving our neighbors more than ourselves. We don't have to be concerned about making a name for ourselves. We've been given all that. And so now you can look around this room and really care for people because there's no condemnation for you who are in Christ, there is no wrath for you who are trusting in Christ. God is your Father. And so these people in this room, the people who are on vacation, Members of this church, we can take care of one another. We don't have to be all in our heads about what God thinks about us or what each other thinks about us. And we can fight the desire to judge each other's sin. And we can pursue love and unity and be quick to offer mercy, be quick to seek to understand, and not to justify ourselves. And you know what? The hope of all of this that I'm just talking about is that God is going to do it. He is doing that in us. He will have his way. If there's one thing we can learn about him protecting his people is that he promised a savior and he made it happen. And he's promised many things to us. He's promised that he will not stop what he has started in us, that he is going to complete this work. He's promised that we will walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. But we're so concerned in taking those good works to make a name for ourselves instead of clinging to Christ as our only hope and loving one another. You'd be surprised at how many good works come out of you stop trying to make a name of yourself before God. And really, it's all motivated because of the first thing we said. We always come to this place where we feel like God isn't near. So you know what? I'm going to do something about that. Well, I feel like God doesn't love me, so let me do something about that. We look into ourselves to find reason that that God should or shouldn't be near to us. And we do this making a name for ourselves. And the third truth that we can glean and take away from our considerations so far in Nahum is this. In Christ, God is not against you. He is for you. In Christ, God is not against you. He's for you. God's judgment and his faithfulness through the Old Testament are the results of him being for his people. Christ came because he was for you. God saved Judah because he was for his people. He was committed to his promise to save his people from their sins. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross establishes this. Without a doubt, God will not scatter you. That's what the cross means. God will not scatter you, but he gathers you to himself and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. That is what the cross means. He will hear your prayers. However hopeless it feels to pray them, he hears you. He will be your father and he will walk with you through suffering. So next time you feel like God doesn't love you or he's out to get you or he's forgotten about you, remind yourself that these thoughts are not from God. Those feelings are not from your father who crushed his son. Those thoughts and those feelings are from the enemy. God hung his son on a tree and abandoned him to judgment because he loves you. So as you have these thoughts, remember they're from the enemy and that our enemy's doom is sure. To the enemy, God says, I am against you. For the devil, all evil, and sinners outside of Christ, God will make a complete end. And so, though these terrible feelings will remain, it's hard to do away with them. They'll remain. Sometimes they go away, sometimes they're there. But they're going to remain. Here's the thing to remember. You have had your sins gathered into Christ. And they've been crushed and they've been separated as far as the east is from the west. And God says he's forgotten them. He will not remember you according to your sins, but he remembers you according to the cross of Jesus. Your God died for you. You can trust Christ and calm down. You don't have to freak out when you're having these thoughts. Christ is enough. He is for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. Yeah, to come to you and and know that you are our father. We're so thankful to know that. Even the times that we struggle to believe that you love us, that your truth remains. And as we, you know, walk through suffering, whether it's just mental, emotional struggles of feeling like you're. Far away from us, or like you still judge us, or you're not near to us, or we've never done enough, or we're not sure if you hear us, that you will not leave us or forsake us. Even as we wrestle and struggle against those feelings and emotions. Father, we praise you for your son Jesus. We praise you for this plan of salvation that you accomplish because you love us. And so, God, God, we we together, we say. And we confess that Christ Jesus is our only hope and he is enough for righteousness and he's enough for forgiveness. And so as we cling to him, God, help us to stop making a name for ourselves, to just continue to fight going back to what we've done to earn your favor. Father, continue to use this church, to use this gathering and to use each other to bring us back to Christ being our only hope and how we can take our eyes off of ourselves and love each other. Father, we're so thankful to be in the family of God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.